So good evening. I thought I'd bring in the sounds of the evening a few hours earlier. In case you're wondering what the sound is, it's the sound of the night, last night, down in the woods. will be a similar sound tonight. Notice what happens when you listen to those sounds. So today we've been exploring, expanding this field of loving kindness in greater uh, ripples and dimensions. And tomorrow we'll continue that exploration into radiating kindness in whatever way we can to all beings. And that can be very abstract, all beings, this mass of life, sentient life. But we're actually surrounded by it and touched and influenced by it a lot. So I'm wanting to bring some of that abstraction into this evening and into reflection about what does it mean to radiate kindness to all beings? What is all beings? Who are all beings? So from the Buddha, from the Metta Sutta, Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease, whatever living being there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. What a beautiful expression of this expansive heart of kindness. And he's pointing to radiating I'm going to turn this off now. I forgot it was still on. I was like, oh, enjoying that sound. <laughs> Otherwise, Metallica comes on next, and it's a little jarring. So. <laughs> Not really. But <laughs> oh, I'm kind of missing that now. <laughs> you can just open your window tonight, and there it will be. So it's more than the human world. All beings, all life, all sentient life everywhere. The latest science consensus, rough consensus, is there's 8 point million species living on this planet. And I think only 1.5 million of those have been uh, catalogued. So the mass of species we don't actually really know that much about. There's, I think, 30 million kinds of insects. I mean, just the, the immensity of life is, is staggering. And there's 16,000 of those species on the endangered species list. And probably many, many more would be on there if we knew about them and we knew about their habitat being under, uh, under destruction. So just to bring in that sense of the vastness of life in which our heart can radiate. And we're even, even needing to expand what, it means, what we mean by sentience. Right? There's a lot of very interesting research being done in biology with the, the life of plants, of trees, the way they communicate, the way they respond to distress, uh, the way they send out signals to each other under dis- duress. Right? So the question of what is sentient perhaps needs to be enlarged. 
You know, many cultures, many traditions view plant life, tree life as living beings with spirits abiding in those beings. I know when I'm hanging out in the redwood forests in California, these beings have been there for one, two thousand years. There's a very palpable sense of a being there that I'm wishing kindness for, that know a lot about life and know a lot about resilience and the vicissitudes and rootedness. So this talk really is going to be an exploration of nature and love, or metta and the natural world. And I'm aware that some of you, nature is not that enticing, or alluring, or even interesting, or maybe you don't like it, or you're scared of it. I won't mention any names, but... um, And yet, we can't survive for a moment without it, without the heat of the sun, without the elements that the Buddha speaks to, that course through every life form. The earth element that we rely on for food, for sustenance. The water element that we wouldn't survive with for more than a few days. The air element, maybe for a few minutes. The fire element that sustains us from the heat of the sun. Whether we like it or not, we're in a very intimate relationship with the natural world, however much we may go out into what we call nature. Nature is everywhere. We live at this, this building is a lot of you know, ancient rock and forest and minerals. And I don't want to overly romanticize nature. Nature is wild. It's, it's powerful. It's both generative and destructive. And we're living in times because of climate change, etc., where we're, we're feeling... Uh, the power and the potency even more with hurricanes, with floods, uh, etc., and storms. I live out in the West where we're, you know, there's a 365-day uh, uh, fire season. You know, I, I, I work up in Sonoma County, which is in Northern California, where they had the recent massive fires, six, 7,000 structures destroyed and um, working with the Sonoma County uh, managers and, and the, the, the local, uh, the county employees there. And uh, I was actually teaching one course, and we had the, 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 the sheriff who was leading the fire response, amazing human being, a meditator. Uh, we we're going to be doing some work with the, with the sheriff's department and the first responders there with mindfulness. And um, this woman talked about losing her home. Um, you know, got the call in the middle of the night, you know, you've got, you know, 10 minutes to evacuate and uh, evacuated and didn't know for some days whether her home was there or not. And then uh, she drove back into the neighborhood and the whole neighborhood had been completely incinerated. So she walks up to her plot of land and she walks up the driveway and she walks up to what was the front door and there's a rock by the front door that she'd left, that she'd been given uh, to by a friend, and on the rock was engraved the words faith. Faith. And that's been a very potent symbol for her of what, what faith remains when you lose everything. Right? So in that way, nature is a profound teacher of both destruction and generation and the, the love and the community that came together was very beautiful there. What's troubling for me as an um, as earth dweller and earth lover and a, and, a, and a nature-based meditation teacher is that we are less and less uh, in contact with the natural world, that children play less and less. There's more and more restrictions. There's more uh, time spent looking at screens than looking at trees. And so what Richard Louvre called nature deficit disorder, which is a profound malady amongst our youth, that all the various symptoms that come when we don't have access to nature. 
you know, attention deficit issues, learning issues, uh, relational issues, empathy issues. Nature is a profound support for human well-being. And when we don't have access to that, which many people don't either in the cities or because of fear or because of urbanization or because of our screen uh, obsession, um, you know, it's a loss for all of us, and particularly for the earth. So in this talk, um, I want to explore the relationship between the Brahma Viharas and the natural world. You know, there's a reason why these retreat centers and monasteries and temples and hermitages are built in nature, in the forest, in the mountains, in the deserts, in the jungles. We could do this same retreat, you know, downtown Manhattan, or in Cambridge, but it wouldn't be the same, would it? Some of you would be fine, (laughs) closer to home. But there's so many uh, almost ineffable qualities that come from this immersion when we're out in the forest, even though we're not in the forest, and some of you are very happy we're not in the forest because a lot of things you don't want crawling on you. But nevertheless, we're surrounded, we're we're pervaded by the natural world. You know, spring is in its abundance, it's fecund. Right, the light that you know that many of you are walking outside, that lovely meditation, seven o'clock meditation, walking meditation. It's a beautiful time, the stillness, the perfume in the air, the sweetness. And many of you talk about how nature here is so sustaining. And you get tight and caught up in your practice or your critics on your case, or your you just need some space and you step outside and there's ease or there's connection or there's a sense of feeling held, or a sense of belonging. And it's the same when I teach at Spirit Rock, which is my home base, home center. And, um, you know, I think people come there as much for the land as anything else. For the hills, for the, for the animals, the deers. And, um, you know, I remember spending many a, three-month retreat here and, and just falling in love with the chickadees, walking in the woods, you know, and they follow you because they hope you have seeds. You know, just how easily the heart is touched. I was walking along down the road here this, evening, this afternoon and I saw a cardinal, a red cardinal, and just that splash of color. It's beautiful. We have swallows that come every year that nest right in the busy part of the center of the retreat, at the upper retreat hall. Um, and they build their nest above the bathroom doors, which is a very busy place. And you see the little uh, um, uh, chicks, you know, shivering and shaking and hoping and thinking you might be mom. And, you know, and you see mom coming and, and it's a very, very tender you know, and so the heart, you know, both opens to love, it opens to compassion with the tenderness of life. Because one year we had, um, well, we often have great horned owls, and I was walking up to the hall about midnight, and the great horned owl was looking, sitting perched right opposite the swallow's nest. And the, and the parents were darting about frantically, because they're prey for the great horned owl. You know, just a lot of tenderness for the, for the vulnerability of life. And then we have spring and the fawns. We have a lot of deer there. It's a sanctuary like the land here. And you see the, the fawns playing and frolicking. And you see the mothers licking the fawns just after they've been born. It's just this sweet joy, this delight. Um, and we also have ticks. And... Uh, you know, and we have to practice equanimity as we walk outside and may all beings be well, including the ticks. So just to reflect for a moment the ways that you're touched by the natural world here. Each time I walk down 
the driveway and see that blooming chestnut tree and this stunning flowers, you know, or the lilacs, the smell of the lilacs wafting over the lawn. In many ways, your heart might be open. Or the sounds at night, the frogs, if you walk down to where there's water, or the crickets and whatever else is chirping at night. Notice how it touches you. Often, for many of us, it, it, it's soothing, it's softening, it's tenderizing, it opens the heart. This is part of our meta practice. I would like us to include nature as part of our meta practice because it's one of those things for many people, most people, that touches the heart. You know, it's hard. If we saw a fawn playing on the lawn, it would be hard not to fall in love with the fawn, right? Might be hard to send meta to yourself, but the fawn, that's easy, right? Or maybe you see a bird that's fallen out of its nest, flailing on the forest floor, right? You're going to be moved, touched, right? That's because we have love innately in our heart. And in the right context, the right environment, the right conditions, it arises. So we've, as a species, you know, our home is in nature. This word nature is a weird word that is everything. When I say nature, we think, oh, it's out there. But uh, as a species, we grew up inextricably immersed in the natural world. I had a phrase someone used the other day, some more poetic than I'm going to say it, um, that we're moving mud. Right? We're moving soil. Right? I, I, the way I say it on my nature retreats is we're part of the earth's moving surface. We're not just on the earth. We are of the earth moving conscious of itself. See what happens when you change your frame of reference from being on the earth to being part of the earth's moving surface, which we are. When you walk through the forest, you are part of that forest. You're not just in the forest or taking a walk through it. You are the forest in that moment. To the snake that's hearing your vibrations from your footsteps, you're part of the forest. Snakes. Snakes? Is there snakes? <laughs> if there were snakes here, <laughs> you know, in some forests, far away in the tropics, if you were walking through that forest and they felt your vibration, you, that, you, that, that snake, you're part, of the for, you're part of the living, breathing forest. Right? It's an interesting self-perception. This is a poem from Rumi. I mean, and so when we, don't, when we feel separate and alienated and isolated from that very lived experience, we do feel separate. Right? And so much of these teachings about seeing through that illusory sense of separation. When I was a stream, when I was the forest, when I was still the field, when I was every hoof, foot, fin, and wing, when I was the sky itself, no one ever asked me, did I have a purpose? No one ever wondered, was there anything I might need? For there was nothing I could not love. It was when I left all we once were that the agony began, the fear and questions came, and I wept and I wept, and tears I had never known before. So I returned to the river, I returned to the mountains, I asked for their hand in marriage, I begged, I begged to wed every object and every creature. So for the past oh, maybe 25 years, my main temple has been nature. My main place to practice has been nature. My meditation spot has been outside. Most of my retreats these days I teach outside because I think for me, nature is my primary teacher, my Dharma teacher. The Dharma teachings, wisdom teachings, are very easily accessed and revealed when we're outside. I'm not going to explore that. You can look at my other work where I've talked about that a lot. 
But that's why, as I said, so many traditions, whether it's the Zen hermitage, the Chan monks of China, Tibetan yogis in uh, Tibet, or the Thai forest monks in Sri Lanka, and sorry, in Thailand, and um, you know, Christian mystics in the desert, right? they've gone to the to nature for refuge, for support on this journey. When I go out into nature, I reflect on this prayer from the Ute peoples, mostly living in the Southwest now. Um, and, you know, in, in, in indigenous culture, the, the understanding of nature as both not separate and also as a teacher is really quite evident. And, and this is a prayer that I like to recite before I give any teaching outside. It goes like this. It says, um, Earth, teach me stillness as the grasses are stilled with light. Earth, teach me suffering, as stones suffer with memory. Earth, teach me caring, as the mother who secures her young. Earth, teach me courage, as the tree which stands all alone. Earth, teach me humility, as blossoms are humble with beginning. Earth, teach me limitation, as the ant which crawls on the ground. Earth, teach me freedom as the eagle which soars in the sky. Earth, teach me to surrender as leaves shed their leaves and fall, trees shed their leaves and fall. Earth, teach me regeneration as the seed which rises in spring. Earth, teach me to forget myself as melted snow forgets its life. And earth, teach me to remember kindness as rain drenches dry fields. So many teachings there. You could add your own. Earth, teach me to remember joy as I smell the fragrance of lilacs in spring. Earth, teach me to remember happiness as I watch the sun float down towards the horizon. So sadly, when we uh, remove ourselves from that, we, we lose this beautiful doorway, this opportunity. This Dharma gate, as they say in Zen. It's a lovely line from Kabir, and he says, uh, When the eyes and the ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees read like pages from the scriptures. So one of the foundational, essential qualities of metta is connection, and we've we've spoken about that. And one of the places people feel most connected is in nature. We tend to feel a little less separate, a little more part of things. When I take people out uh, on retreats and we're, say, in a wilderness camp or a retreat center and we're drinking from a well or a stream, I say, we are becoming the stream. Not as a nice idea, (laughs) if we're 70% water and we're drinking from that mountain stream all week, by the end of that week, you are more the mountain stream than anything else, right? That's called connection. This is from D.H. Lawrence. We cannot bear connection. We must break away and be isolate. We call that being free, being individual. Beyond a certain point which we have reached, it is suicide. What mankind most passionately wants is their living wholeness, their living unison, not their own isolate salvation of their souls. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me, that I am part of the earth my feet know perfectly, and my blood is also of the sea. There is nothing of me that is alone and absolute except my mind, And we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surface of the waters. So what I want to spend the rest of the talk doing is is, is really just pointing to different ways that nature uh, um, either touches the heart or opens the heart or, or points to this work that we're doing here. So one of the first things that I, that I think can happen 
um, is we get a different frame of reference about what beauty is and what happiness is. We have so many bombardments uh, of how what beauty means is and, and how to appreciate oneself through that lens, and it's very distorted. So I'm also going to be sharing a lot of poetry. For, for me, nature and poetry uh, are in a kind of a dance together, and poetry often speaks to what I'm wanting to speak to better than my words can. So this is a poem from uh, Fleur Adcock. She's a New Zealand poet called Weathering, and she's someone who spent a lot of time outside. Literally thin-skinned, I suppose, my face catches the wind off the snow line and flushes with a flush that will never wholly settle. Well, that was a metropolitan vanity, wanting to look younger forever, to pass. I was never a pre-Raphaelite beauty, nor anything but pretty enough to satisfy men who need to be seen with passable women. But now that I'm in love with a place which doesn't care how I look or if I'm happy, happy is how I look and that is all. My hair will grow gray in any case, my nails chip and flake, my waist thicken, and the years work all their usual changes. If my face is to be weather-beaten as well, that's little enough lost, a fair bargain for a year among the lakes and the fells, when simply to look out of my window at the high pass makes me indifferent to mirrors and to what my soul may wear over its new complexion. So um, one of the things, as I mentioned yesterday in, in the words that I shared about the critic, you know, I think of the critic as being one of the greatest hindrances to uh, our well-being and also to the heart opening. And one of the things I think is very apparent when we go outside is a two-way process. One, we tend to be less judgmental about nature. Right? There's all kinds of weird and wacky, beautiful old trees here, limbs fallen, split in half, the, the crown decaying. And regardless, we find pretty much most things in nature beautiful. Right? No matter how old or decaying or lopsided a tree might be, we can appreciate its idiosyncratic beauty, its isness. Right? In the same way when we go out into nature, we don't feel judged. No one's, the oak tree is not going, bad yogi, <laughs> bad mindfulness. No, there's a, that, that sense of self-consciousness relaxes. And hopefully over time that, 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 that non-judgmental appreciation can begin to wash over how we view other people. Because we are all just nature just our own idiosyncratic expression of what it means to be a homo sapiens sapien. And so we can maybe question this idea of what is perfection, right? The critic holds us to this horrible standard of perfection, impossible, idealized. Right? But we can see we're all perfectly imperfect, just as we are graying hair and wrinkles and whatever it is that we think is wrong or problematic, it is what it is. We go into nature and we see an, an ancient oak tree and it's withered and gnarled and weather-beaten and we think it's beautiful. Maybe we can look in the face and we also look weather-beaten and gnarled and appreciate the naturalness of it, you know? It's from Mary Oliver. Nature Poet Laureate. The ponds. Every year the lilies are so perfect I can hardly believe their lapped light crowding the black midsummer ponds. Nobody could count all of them. The muskrats swimming among the pads and the grasses can reach out and touch only so many. They are that rife and wild. But what in this world is perfect? I bend closer and see how this one is clearly lopsided. This one wears an orange blight and that one a glossy cheek, half nibbled away, and this one a slumped purse full of its own unstoppable decay. Still, what I want in my life is to be willing, to be dazzled, to cast aside the weight of facts, and maybe even to float a little above this difficult world. I want to believe I'm looking into the white fire of a great mystery, to believe the imperfections are nothing, the light is everything. 
that is more than the sum of each flawed blossom rising and falling, and I do. So I think one of the, the um, uh, ways that we rob ourselves sometimes of well-being when we don't take advantage of the natures that's around us, you know, even if it's a park, if you live in New York or in, in a city, um, is um, you know we, we get so myopically uh, fixated. Uh, self-centered in our houses and cars and cubicles and and when we step outside something opens up something lightens up there's more ease there's more space right I think of going outside as a meta practice for most people because of the joy it brings or the peace it brings or the well-being it brings again this isn't for everybody some people are not wild about going outside and that's fine or going out into certain particular environments. But I think it's important that we find somewhere where we feel at home, where we feel our place. Uh, Like when I go home, I'll go home on Wednesday, I don't really feel at home until I go into the woods and I smell the particular smell of the Bay Area, which is eucalyptus, it's bay, it's laurel, and it's so we've got this sharp kind of fragrance, a lot of sage. And I'm like, oh, I'm home. This is home. This is where I belong now. It didn't, took me 10 years for me to feel comfortable with the smells because they weren't English. They didn't smell like a damp forest. <laughs> and I love the smell of a damp forest, like the, the smell here in spring after the rains. I just, it's so nourishing if that's, if that's what you've grown up in. So to notice where you feel at home, where you find your sense of place, where you feel a sense of belonging. Another poem from Miss Oliver, Wild Geese, beloved poem. This is really a great meta poem, especially this first line. You do not have to be good. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal body of love what it loves. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair yours and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes over the prairies and the trees and mountains and rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the scheme of things, in the family of things. So there's, uh, and I'm I'm sure many of you, there's a lot of migratory paths here of the Greece, the, the Canadian geese and other geese. And when I hear that sound, it's such a familiar sound, the same way if I hear the wood dove, um, or if I'm in England and I hear the, uh, the robin, or if I'm in California, it's the, the, the house finch. And there's a sense of, oh, right, home, familiar, announcing our place in the family of things. Another profound and beautiful teaching that we get from being outside when we bring a contemplative awareness um, is uh, the teaching on impermanence, change, loss, letting go. Nothing in nature stays the same. The top of Mount Everest is marine sandstone. Marine, as in used to be at the bottom of the sea, 
now is the, t- the tallest mountain in the world, will no doubt be back again in the sea in a few tens of millions of years. And some of you are here, we're dealing with loss, with heartbreak, with dissolution, with endings. And that can feel so disruptive and an aberration. And sometimes it feels wrong, painful. And we walk out into the woods, into the forest, into wherever. And we might come across a skull. And I teach a lot in, in, uh, in the desert in, in Mexico, in Baja. And there's, all, there's it's littered with skulls of fish and birds and crabs. And you know, death is everywhere. Transience is everywhere. And we come into feeling the, the naturalness of it, the lawfulness of it. And it can help settle something within us. It can help find some sense of ease or letting go or rest. That it's part of the way things are. And so it can be a, a kind of a slow, tender way to, to ease that grieving process. Again, from Miss Oliver. Every year, everything I've ever learned leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones as if your own life depended on it, And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So many teachings of how things release in nature. Fall, the fall season here is such a beautiful teaching of release, of surrender. The birds fleeing their nest. But I think what I really want to um, bring awareness to, which is sort of explaining the obvious, but I think sometimes it's helpful to have the obvious pointed out. You know, the amount of times I've said to people on retreat, because of pain, because of pressure, because of anxiety, because of fear, because of all kinds of things that go on and people in retreat, go outside, take a walk, take a cup of tea, and sit with a tree. Notice what else is here other than the pain that you're in, or the sadness you're in, or the anxiety that's rippling through your body, or the fear Pay attention to the non-distressed world, which means turning our attention outwards often, and um, and letting seeing what touches you. When we behold something that's beautiful, or uplifting, or spacious like the sky, or moving like the rippling water, right, it, it touches something in us, and it can allow so much of our distress to ease. And it's and I think I was just I was taking a long walk today and I was looking at these beautiful forests that I love here. And um, that felt like a meta practice. Paying it being aware of beauty, of nature and feeling how much love I felt for it, how much love I felt coming from it, is a meta-practice. It's, it's a practice of opening the heart, right? just as is gazing at these night skies. It's a form of meta-practice, opening the heart, transcending oneself to some degree. It's a poem called Red Bird Explains Himself. I'm very happy I got to see the cardinal because this, I felt like this, he showed up to uh, tell me to read this poem. Red Bird Explains Himself. 
Yes, I was the brilliance floating over the snow, and I was the song in the summer leaves, but that was only the first trick. I had hold of many among my mythologies. But don't stop there. Stay with me. Listen. If I was the song that entered your heart, then I was the music of your heart that you wanted and needed. And this wilderness bloomed in there with all its followers, gardeners, lovers, people who weep for the death of rivers. And this was my true task, to be the music of the body. Do you understand? For body, for truly the body needs a song, a spirit, a soul. And no less to make this work, the soul has need of a body. And I am both of the earth and I am of the inexplicable beauty of heaven, where I fly so easily, so welcome, yes. And this is why I have been sent to teach this to your heart. So I, one of the things I love about teaching um, these practices in beautiful places like this is, um, especially when we're outside, as I pose the question, why wouldn't you want to be aware? Why wouldn't you want to be mindful? Why wouldn't you want to pay attention with this beauty all around, right? This spring, this bloom, this flourishing, this you know, emerald green trees. So tomorrow I'm going to be inviting you to, um, and tonight, to expand this quality of kindness and, and radiating, right? The Buddha talked about radiating kindness. You go outside, letting yourself both feel perhaps love that's coming from this place and allow yourself to radiate this quality of kindness or appreciation or gratitude or love. Or mudita, when you see someone else walking through and clearly being touched. Some lines again from May Oliver. She says, my work is loving the world, which is mostly standing still in a field and learning to be astonished. My work, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, which to give shouts of joy to that which I see learning to stand still and be astonished. There was a while ago when there was a lot of bumper stickers that said, if you're not mad or angry, you're not paying attention. And I wanted to have a a bumper sticker that said something like, you know, if your heart's not singing, you're not paying attention. And if your heart's not touched, you're not paying attention. Because as much as there's pain and suffering and distress and horror in the world, there's also beauty and love and spring and delight. So I'm, I'm aware that I'm orienting to the, the beauty and the joy of nature, but it's not all that, of course, you know. Nature is harsh, it's wild, it's untamed, it's scary. I've done a lot of retreats on my own, camping out at night when I first came to the States. So I'm from England. The most scariest thing we have is probably a ladybird. Um, there's just nothing at all you know, sort of poisonous or just very, very, you know, it's, you know, temperate and mild. And I was camping up in the woods um, and this wonderful retreat center that I teach at every year called Vallecitos. And um, I was alone for a couple of weeks in between courses. And it was like, you know, 30, 40 miles to the nearest town. And, um, and there's, you know, there's bobcats and, mountain lion and bear and coyote and um, 
no ticks, but lots of uh, bear, and um, and I was terrified. <laughs> and I had this very interesting practice. This kind of relates to matter in a way. So I was in my tent, in this cloth tent, this big canvas tent, and like paranoid about every sound. Like I could just, you know, I just knew the bear was just like waiting until <laughs> I came out to pee. Like. <laughs> And so I was aware that I created this whole division between inside and outside and me and them and me and other. And I thought, this is a, it's a, such a mind trap, right? Someone once said to me, uh, a tent is like a candy wrapper for a bear. You know, it's just like... <laughs> you, you, you're huddling this sort of like safe, secure thing like, oh, I'm safe in here, you know. Tiny little... You know, I didn't know what the material is now. It's just so thin. It's almost see-through. Anyhow, so I, just, I took my bed outside in the meadow, and I just thought there's going to be no inside and no outside. I'm just, I'm just here. And it was a really interesting teaching on dissolving that sense of separation. I just felt immediately much more part of the landscape. And all that fear of the other and what was out there, I was like, well, I'm out there. <laughs> And it's, you know, it's, it's still dark and I don't know what's out there, but it, it actually really dissolved that sense of division, which, of course, it's a great metaphor for how we create these divisions and boundaries and otherness and all of that. So, um, yeah, so I was wanting to explore the, the Brahma-Vihara dimension. I'll just do this somewhat uh, briefly since some time is passing. Um, and I've really been talking a lot about the love and how we're touched and how we're moved. And um, uh, I was I was teaching. A, so I'm doing it middle in the middle of a, a nature teacher training. And I was so there was a camping retreat last week, and uh, I took them the group to the sunrise spot. So we're doing a sunrise meditation. And what I hadn't realized was that the cows were in the same pasture as we were. So we all came out in a long line, sitting on the road, about 20 of us, and all the cows and the calves and the bull came right up to us, just like. (laughs) It was very sweet, but it was just so heart-opening to feeling this really sweet, you know. And then one woman said, at least one, maybe maybe more than one, was like, I cannot eat meat anymore. Like when you look in a being that closely and tenderly and you say, oh, that's, that's the movement of love. Right? It's beautiful. It also teaches us a lot about compassion. And for those of you particularly who are earth lovers and tracking what's happening to the planet and to ecosystems and to our water and our air and our endangered species. It's a very harrowing and heartbreaking time to be alive, to be conscious, and to have a feeling heart, because it's heartbreaking, and it's getting worse. And um, to hold that with compassion, both for oneself, for the pain is one in, but also the tremendous pain that um, peoples and species are facing and will be facing loss of habitat, disruption to migration patterns, to feeding cycles, the loss of land. So I wanted to play something. I was watching this movie recently called um, Chasing Extinction. There was Chasing Ice, and there's been a bunch of films about chasing various things that are, that are sort of markers of climate change. And um, these very courageous film about these people who track uh, the trafficking of endangered species and try to thwart that to mitigate some of the impact. And um, they started with this um, uh, song of the bird, the Kauai O'o bird from the island of Kauai in Hawaii. And um, it's uh, uh, the last remaining male of the species singing for its mate and there's no mate because it's the last of the species.
makes it very real, doesn't it? It's heartbreaking. From the endangered species list, at the top right now is the ivory-billed woodpecker, the Amur leopard, the Javan rhinoceros, the lima, the northern right whale, the black rhinoceros, Pacific walrus, leatherback turtle, mountain gorilla, bluefin tuna, monarch butterfly, Indian elephant, tiger, polar bear, giant panda. That's a very long list, right? I've, I've sort of plucked out some of the mega fauna. I teach at Esalen every year uh, on the West Coast, sort of about a few hours south of San Francisco. And, um, and, and there's these trees that uh, you look at them and they're like, oh, it's an interesting brown tree. And then you look again and you realize, oh, it's covered with tens of thousands of monarch butterflies. And they come from Mexico. But those butterflies don't come from Mexico. Their grandfathers and grandmothers came from Mexico. It takes three generations to fly from Mexico to California. Only one generation to fly back because of the air currents. Isn't that amazing? Three generations just to get to them where they, where they hang out in the summer. And one generation to fly back. Under threat, obviously, any species that migrates, much more at risk because much more habitat in the way of its feeding grounds and all kinds of things. So with this practice, we get to hold both the beauty and the joy and the sorrow. So the basis of my nature work is the phrase, we protect what we love. We protect what we love. If we don't have any contact with that, with with something, we're not going to get to know it. We're unlikely to fall in love with it. We're unlikely to protect it. If we don't go out into nature, if our youth doesn't go out into nature and doesn't open its heart and doesn't fall in love, much less likely to be better stewards, much less likely to protect it. If you think about that which you care about and you protect and you're passionate about, it's because it's coming from love, this love in action. So there's a heart opening with metta. There's the the weeping of compassion and the wish to respond. But the reason why I focus most of this talk on the relationship of the heart and beauty and joy is because that's mostly where our heart needs nourishing. We don't need to hear about the overwhelming facts of what's happening to the planet because we know that mostly, right? You know that? You know all the data? Kind of depressing. That's not generally what moves us. What moves us is hearing a bird song and not wanting the cardinal to have to be in a similar situation in 20 years. So we have kindness, we have the heart opening, we have compassion. And we have joy. So, you know, we've been defining mudita as appreciative joy. And I would say when we have access to joy ourselves, we're more likely to have appreciative joy for others. It's one of the supports, just like gratitude and knowing our blessings is. So... I'm going to share another poem, and I think this is a beautiful poem about how 
uh, we weave mindfulness and the heart practices together and what arises is joy. This again is from Miss Oliver and she says, every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world with joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, but of the ordinary, the common, the daily presentations. O good scholar, I say to myself, how could you help but grow wise with but teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, and the prayers that are made out of grasses. So we have this, the heart, the, the mature heart has this range for love, for compassion, for deep care, for joy. And as we've been speaking about yesterday and today, a balance by equanimity, a steadiness, capacity to hold the vicissitudes, which doesn't mean to be uh, um, flatlined, to make room for all of this, the, these feelings. Because if we're, if we're a live, awake human being with a heart, we're going to feel this range. But to also be without contention, without struggle. We're currently in the sixth mass extinction. There's been five prior to this. I find this somehow weirdly comforting. More than 99% of all species that ever lived on the earth are extinct. Almost 99% of all species that have ever lived on the earth are estimated to be extinct. We're in a vast cycle. Equanimity takes a step back and sees the vastness of the scale in which our world is playing out. But it doesn't mean we stop caring for that one kawaii o'o bird that's singing for his mate. It doesn't mean we're indifferent, but it means we also understand the bigger picture. And as we'll be speaking to in the next couple of days, as we uh, think about going home, we also uh, look and reflect on how does uh, this heart move in the world, move us into action. I once spoke to Joanna Macy, who's a colleague and friend and mentor of mine in in working with uh, ecological issues and with activism. And I said, how do you not give up in despair? You know, she, she, was, she was first with the Nuclear Guardianship Project in the 70s, and she's been when she was at Chernobyl, and she was you know, present to many ecological catastrophes. And um, she said, the one advice I have for you is to stay engaged. Find some action, something to get involved with, and don't do it alone. Find others, collaborate, network, engage. It doesn't matter if you succeed. It matters that you engage. Very sagely words. This is words from a great Buddhist teacher and um, environmental activist, uh, Robert Aiken, who used to live in Hawaii. Waking up in the morning, I vow with all beings to be ready for sparks of the Dharma from flowers, children, and birds. Sitting alone in meditation, I vow with all beings to remember I'm sitting with mountains and children and bears. Looking up at the sky, I vow with all beings to remember this infinite ceiling in every room of my life. When I stroll in the city, I vow with all beings to notice how lichen and grasses never give up in despair. Watching a spider at work, I vow with all beings to cherish the web of the universe, touch one point and everything moves. Preparing the garden for seeds, I vow with all beings to nurture the soil to be fertile each spring for the next thousand years. When people praise me for something, I vow with all beings to return to my vegetable garden and give credit where credit is due. With tropical forests in danger, I vow with all beings to raise hell with the people responsible and slash my consumption of trees. With resources scarcer and scarcer, I vow with all beings to consider the law of proportion. My have is another's have not. Watching gardeners label their plants, I vow with all beings to practice the old horticulture and let the plants identify me. 
Hearing the crickets at night, I vow with all beings to keep my practices simple over and over again. Falling asleep at last, I vow with all beings to enjoy the dark and the silence and rest in the great unknown. So a couple things to close. There was, um, just in case you're wondering, not much is happening out there in the, in, in the other world, the unreal world. There was a royal wedding. And um, uh, it was amazing for many reasons. Um, um, and particularly because it was in the, 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 you know, the bastion of the, the English establishment. Um, and it was uh, you know, uh, Prince Harry marrying um, a woman of African-American descent. And there was a um, gospel choir in this ancient church. And um, beautiful African-American bishop, Michael Murray, gave the address, the address, the address, which was a beautiful, impassioned speech about love. And I encourage you to watch it when you go home. Beautiful. Um, and many, many beautiful lines, but one line I was going to share with you is, when love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary. When, earth, when love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary. So I'm going to close with a prayer uh, by Diana Ackerman, beautiful writer, and it's really a prayer for the earth and a prayer for the intention of our practice that may we include the earth as part of our ambit of concern that our practice is both touched by and influenced and may we not just radiate but also act act as um, great healers and stewards of the earth. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning, I always well up when I read this poem. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning, and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs. I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it and the cloud veils drawn over it and the uttermost night and the male and the female and the plants bursting with seed and the crowning seasons of firefly and apple I will honor all life wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home and in the mansions of the stars. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. May all beings of this beautiful home we call earth be safe, be healthy, and thrive.